This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Coral reefs are one of the greatest showcases of life on our planet. They occupy only about 0.2% of the ocean floor, yet they are home to a quarter of all marine life. Quite obviously, corals are a critical pillar in the entire marine ecosystem. Now, oceans absorb most of the heat trapped in the atmosphere due to increasing greenhouse gases. This has caused oceans to warm and become more acidic, and there has been a lot of damage to corals. If you look at Australia's storied Great Barrier Reef, for example, it has suffered six mass bleaching events between 1998 and 2022. And there were back-to-back events in 2016 and 17. Coral reefs can and do recover, but marine heat waves are happening with greater frequency. Now, globally, also more than 500 million people depend on reefs for livelihoods. Reef-related tourism reels in billion. In East Asia alone, it brings in around 11.3 billion US dollars annually. And this is from snorkeling, diving, recreational fishing, boat tours, resorts, and so forth. And then, of course, local communities as well depend on the reefs for food security. But what happens when the water is so warm that reefs die? To help understand what is going on and the ramifications, I have today Florida-based marine conservationist Jennifer Pollum, Executive Director of the Ocean Conservation Foundation, and Director of Conservation for Rainbow Reef Dive Center, the largest dive operator in the Americas. And from the other side of the planet, but also in the tropics, I am joined by Dr. Yanni Tanzil, a marine ecologist and facility director at St. John's Island National Marine Laboratory in Singapore. Jennifer and Yanni, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Nirmal. Very, very great to be here with good company. Thank you. Jennifer, the first question to you, if I may. Now, warming this past summer has been at record levels. Can you give me some idea of what you have been seeing, witnessing personally? Sure. We started to see the mass warming event in early July, which is quite early in the season for us. Of course, we always get warming temperatures in the summer here. But in early July, we saw a very, very large spike which is uncommon, and it's partially due to the El Nino effect this year. I have been keeping track of two particular reefs that are here in Key Largo, Horseshoe Reef and also um, Christ of the Abyss statue, which is a very famous historical statue here that people love to come to see and snorkel. And we have month-over-month photographs of just really some massive deterioration in bleaching of the elkhorn and staghorn in particular, but we're also seeing a lot of it in the lettuce corals and the boulder corals and things like that. So it it's really, really stark evidence. We're seeing some of these elkhorn colonies that are decades old, in some cases, hundreds of years old, that are entirely bleached. And now that it's into November and we're starting to take a look at what's recovering, they're not recovering. They're getting covered over by algae, which means mortality has happened. Oh, that's not very good at all. Yanni, could you add to that from your perspective in Southeast Asia? How bad is it in in that region? Well, Nirmal, this year in Southeast Asia, there hasn't actually been a bleaching event, despite what's been sort of uh, seen elsewhere in the Central Pacific, as well as definitely in Florida. Um, In Singapore and around this region, we've not actually experienced any significant warming 
Um, it was a little bit touch and go earlier, middle of the year, where temperatures did rise up to over 31 degrees, 31.5 degrees Celsius, actually. Uh, but in general, yeah, we've not actually seen any significant bleaching or any bleaching at all, especially in Singapore. Um, we have actually seen a lower than normal temperatures in January this year, where our waters went down all the way down to 27 degrees Celsius, which is very uncommon. Um, <laughs> uh, it is our lowest temperature period in Singapore, but yeah, uncommonly cooler than usual where we would have average temperatures here about 29, 30 degrees Celsius, 27 degrees Celsius is definitely unexpectedly cool. Say for instance, in the Gulf of Thailand, you know, I have colleagues of mine who have said that, yeah, they, they've seen some low levels of bleaching in the shallow waters, but uh, it's nothing like what, you know, we've seen in 2016 in the past in this region and 2010, as well as 1998, those were the three major, major bleaching events that's happened here where water temperatures, you know, rose up to over 32 degrees Celsius. But this year, I think we've had other issues. In the Gulf of Thailand, there was a yellow band disease outbreak, which has spread to a lot of the parietes, uh, corals especially, that dominate the area, the reefs there, uh, which is causing quite the trouble over there. <laughs> and I think with warming and with other sort of environmental changes related to climate change as well as you know coastal development and human activities this is something we're going to see more often not just bleaching events jennifer did you want to add something well first of all i'm very jealous that you haven't had the bleaching events that we've had here yeah. um, <laughs> very very jealous uh Heat waves are pretty typical in South Florida, but this is the largest bleaching event uh, that we've basically ever seen. It's unprecedented. The last severe bleaching event was over 2014 into 2015. And unfortunately, our reefs here on the Florida Keys Reef Tract are already about 98% extinct. So we only have 2% of the remaining corals that we should have naturally occurring left here right now which means that, well, we call it functionally extinct. The corals that are left out in the uh, ecosystem aren't close enough together to actually spawn effectively to create new corals to settle on the reef. They just can't reach each other anymore. That's a very depressing uh, data point. Now, if I may stick with you, Jennifer, for a moment, and I'll come to you, Yanni, with the same question later. There have been, as we well know, there have been a lot of proximate stressors over the decades, you know, overuse and disturbance of corals from tourism, boating, from fishing, both recreational and commercial, legal and illegal. And that has already damaged coral. Now, has that reduced the capacity of corals in terms of their resilience? Are you seeing any of that, Jennifer? Absolutely. As you said, uh, warming ocean temperatures are leading to ocean acidification, which effectively destroys coral skeletons or doesn't allow them to grow more skeletons. And that is directly an effect of climate change. So the poor corals that we still do have left, unfortunately, don't have much of a fighting chance. We also happen to be located in South Florida. So we're very, very close to Miami and all of the metropolitan area that that consists of. So we are a victim of some of the uh, watershed, especially from the agriculture that happens in South Florida. So all of that nutrification that's running off into the ocean is having a dramatic effect on the corals not only being able to actually spawn and reproduce, but then growing at any capacity. 
Yani, from your perspective on the same question? Yeah, definitely. I think like a concurrent sort of interacting effects of uh, human anthropogenic stress, like sedimentation, is a huge sort of additional, you know, negative synergistic effect uh, with global warming. So I think like the most stark uh, example I can give was when I was actually starting my PhD around 2010, which was when I first sort of witnessed myself this mess fields of white during you know coral bleaching in Southeast Asia was the reefs that were impacted and the corals that were impacted by sedimentation near shore. Um, I managed to follow that through the bleaching event and looked at their recovery as well, is that they didn't manage to recover or recover as quickly or at all compared to the offshore reefs where they were sort of not impacted as much by sedimentation and uh, low light penetration. Having said that, I do think that, you know, for instance, in places like in Singapore where you do have uh, low light penetration and, you know, sedimentation issues, it could also be a reprieve uh, because coral bleaching is not just a temperature driven phenomenon, but it's high temperature as well as high light stress. So, you know, in reefs where you do have lower light levels, it might mean that they're actually getting a little bit of a reprieve from the heat. So in 2020, during the peak of the COVID circuit breaker here in Singapore, was actually the last minor beaching event we've actually seen here. And we got permissions to go out to survey the reefs. And what we saw was that, again, in the shallow waters where temperatures were high as well as light was high, the corals were bleaching more severely than the ones in the deeper waters. Okay, okay. I would say the exact same thing is going on here in South Florida. Mm. The reefs that are shallow between, let's say, 1 to 15 feet are suffering from dramatic bleaching. And in fact, as we know, corals bleach over time. They don't usually bleach all at once in one day on a Tuesday or anything like that. Mm. (laughs) But, But we did actually see instant morbidity in a lot of the shallower reefs here rather than see it bleach, you know, over the course of a month. We saw instant morbidity here, especially in the shallow reefs, but the deeper ones are doing slightly better. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. That brings me to another question, Jennifer, if I may stay with you, mentioning shallow waters. Of course, snorkeling and whatnot is a big deal. Are you seeing an impact in Florida yet from warmer waters and bleaching corals on the tourism industry? And is there any concern as ocean temperatures warm even further and coral die-off potentially accelerates? Do you think, is there any concern that the industry is at risk going forward? Personally, at the dive shop, we haven't noticed a dramatic customer decrease. Um, However, of course, there's a huge concern in the future because the reefs are what everybody comes to to see, to snorkel, to scuba dive, and also to fish. We have a very, very lucrative fishing industry down here. And the fish are immediately dependent on the reef structures in order to survive. So the fishing industry would also suffer greatly if the reefs continue to deteriorate. I see. Okay, Yanni, um, what is the situation in your region? Also, is there sufficient protection for coral-rich marine environments in Southeast Asia? Well, I think um, what Jennifer said, we've not had as much time yet to see like, you know, real impacts on the tourism industry. 
But scuba diving and marine tourism is booming. I think people, especially after COVID, are sort of flocking to nature areas. Um, health and well-being are, you know, wellness and is sort of being very, you know, in the forefront of people's interests and priorities after COVID, especially. So we've not actually seen a, a decline in the or impact in the tourism industry. But I would have to say that I think there's also shifts in the tourism industry because people are seeing impacts on the coral reefs, not just from bleaching and warming, but also from sort of other anthropogenic impacts like coastal development and so on. So I think there's also a rise in conservation tourism in Southeast Asia and, you know, being in the heart of marine biodiversity, you know, this region, the Coral Triangle region, I think, you know, that's a good thing overall. So there's definitely a lot more awareness, which is great. I mean, definitely programs like Green Pulse and others, um, you know, in sort of the popular media has made the coral bleaching issues as well as uh, coral reef conservation issues and declines in reefs globally and all that are very much more mainstream and a lot more people are aware and a lot more people want to do something about it. So there's also been a rise in, you know, a lot more sort of conservation interest groups as well, wanting to do something, you know, marine cleanups, underwater cleanups, for instance, in Singapore, our Singapore Reefs is a group that's just formed a few years ago. And they've actually been cleaning up our reefs from trash, which is an additional impact on corals as well, In you know, that prevents their recovery. And then there's also a lot of interest in people wanting to be involved in reef restoration as well because they've seen, you know, destruction that's happening on the reefs or declines in reef conditions, which is great. People want to do something. But on the flip side, uh, I I do personally think that sometimes um, it can veer to the good intentions, but sometimes the methods may not be something that will lead to good outcomes. Uh, for instance, I think in Indonesia, there's there's so many reef restoration efforts done by NGOs, by groups, by, you know, even government as well. But there's over 500 reef restoration projects out there. Over a million corals have been transplanted, but only a fraction actually is followed through. And I've been also asked to sort of advise in reef restoration efforts by dive resorts as well. And it's well-meaning, but at the same time, we're like thinking, why are you trying to restore this reef and taking corals from healthy reef and transplanting it to a degraded area nonetheless, but with possibly low chance of survival and not much scientific strategic sort of planning involved, which could lead to low success down the line, right? Yeah. (laughs) Right, I see. Jennifer, in the Caribbean, what has been your experience on that in terms of, you know, uh, conservation tourism and local actions? Well, I agree with a lot of what Yanni said. Sometimes good intentions don't create the best results. We're lucky in the Florida Keys to actually be part of the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. So almost every reef that runs from um, Miami down to the Dry Tortugas is in a protected area some areas more protected than others. So we already have the benefit of that government protection. Whether or not it's always enforced is a different question. But we also, as part of that, through the National Marine Sanctuary, have a new program called Mission Iconic Reefs, where the government and NGOs and community groups are getting together to try to restore what we consider the seven most iconic reefs in the Florida Keys. So there's a really great collaboration that's going on there. We also have the benefit of having two really world-class scientific organizations right in our backyard, the Coral Restoration Foundation and Moat Marine Laboratories. 
who work differently with the public. They rely some on volunteerism, but also they have great groups themselves who are doing selective husbandry. So they're taking, for instance, an acid-resistant coral and maybe trying to introduce it to a temperature-resistant coral to create not like a freaky Hulk super coral, um, but something that might be more readily able to survive future temperature increases. Groups like the Coral Restoration Foundation do rely heavily on volunteerism. And just like Yanni said, I think we go out with them as dive professionals all the time. And it's well-meaning, but sometimes you see the divers doing a bit more destruction than good. And like she said as well, maybe they'll outplant 10 corals in a single dive trip, but two of them probably will, will survive based on just novice hands doing it. Our foundation, the Ocean Conservation Foundation, is actually trying to bridge the gap there because we've got 100 dive professionals and eight dive boats to lend to the cause of actually outplanting these corals more quickly and more effectively because a dive pro can plant 100 in the time a volunteer could plant maybe 10. So we're really excited about this blueprint and trying to export it elsewhere to show dive shops and dive professionals how conservation can actually be sustaining and pay for the business that you need to run, but also do a lot more good in the community. That's really interesting. Let me leave with the last parting shot for each of you, and perhaps Jennifer, I'll go with you first. If you had a wish list, what would be on it in terms of, you know, addressing vulnerabilities or unaddressed issues? Oh, wow. Um, I think the major problem that we're suffering from right now is poor water quality from the Miami area that's coming down. Things that we can't control, like um, El Nino effects and stuff like that. Obviously, I would wish El Nino out of the formula, but it really is carbon emissions. It's greenhouse gases. As one of you said earlier, the oceans and particularly coral reefs and the seagrass beds absorb most of the carbon out of the atmosphere. And since we're losing so much of that life in the coral reefs, it's really affecting and it's just exacerbating the problem. So that would be my number one. And Yanni, would you like to add to that? What's your wish list? I'm jealous of Jennifer in, in Florida. My wish list is definitely more sort of protection for the reefs around this region, especially, you know, Singapore, we've only got one marine, marine park. And my wish list is very long, but other than <laughs> increased protection, um, you know, as Nirmal sort of alluded to, and along those lines is that, you know, in Singapore, we have the three R's for waste management here. So reduce, reuse, recycle. And I think for my wish list for reef conservation and marine ecosystem management here in this region is that we have our own three R's where we, uh, first of all, try and retain as much key ecosystems out there with uh, rehabilitation as a second choice and only restoration being, you know, the very last option. Because, you know, I have seen that restoration is getting quite a lot of investment. I myself have restoration projects. I'm sure Jennifer as well in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's getting a lot more interest and investment than I would say conservation and retaining key ecosystems should be the first and foremost priority when it comes to marine ecosystem management here. Okay, Jennifer Pollum, Yanni Tanzil, that was very interesting indeed and very much issues that many individuals can relate to. Who doesn't like a beach and a bit of snorkeling to see the incredible universe of a coral reef? Um, thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me now. Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> Now 
That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.